Hello and welcome to the exam hall. This is the podcast where I sit down with a guest and we answer questions from what is known as the hardest exam in the world, the All Souls College Oxford Fellowship Exam. My name is Cherry and I will be your host. I am an ex-education professional, soon to be uni student, and I'm still working out this intro. So let me tell you about the hardest exam in the world. All Souls College Oxford is maybe the most exclusive academic institution in the world. To be eligible to apply, you must already hold a degree from Oxford or be currently studying at postgraduate level there. Applicants must sit a gruelling process of four three-hour exams for a chance to receive one of two possible fellowships. They have to sit two specialist papers and two general papers, which is where we will be drawing our questions from. So, we sort of, I sort of told you about All Souls. And there's nothing left for me to do apart from welcome my guest for this episode... It is writer and theatre maker, Katie Miles. Woo! Hey, Katie. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good, yeah. How are you? Having a good day? Yeah, having a great day, actually. Yeah, what have you been up to today? I've been writing my dissertation. Ooh! (laughs) (laughs) Now, while applicants to All Souls must already hold an Oxford degree or be studying at postgraduate, here at the exam hall, we do not discriminate. Everybody is welcome. Everybody is equal. So with that in mind, Katie, what qualifications do you have to be eligible for this opportunity of being featured on the exam hall podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, So I I am currently studying for a an undergraduate degree in English literature from King's College London. Very nice. Uh, Very nice. Very nice. Very Um, nice. Very nice. But other than that, I I just I love I this is I'm a wanker. Mm. Um, Be a wanker. Be a wanker. We want wankerness. Um, I have always loved learning. Um, I think my the greatest joy in my life has always been learning and academia when I've had access to it. Um, and uh, I um, can't read books, so I'll have to talk about them instead. Nice. Have you got a favourite genre, favourite book, favourite um, word? Favourite word. Um, favourite something literature favorite related? Something literature related. Um, what, was it, what would my favourite word be? That's a really good question. I like fricative. Oh! <gasps> I've never heard that word it's before. Excellent word. Fricative. It's Can you tell me about fricative? It's, it's, it's a f- sound. F- no, it's sibilant. Sorry. F- fricative. Fricative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, not yeah. quite plosive. No, no, no. Plosives are... P- 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 yeah, the ones that you shouldn't do in a microphone. <laughs> no, the ones... <laughs> plosives are the one that are really disgusting. Yeah, or yeah, close yeah. close up. Yeah, but fricative is like... Yeah, f- well, the What does it mean? A, it's, it, I think it's literally just like a hard sound. I think. Oh, so okay, so it describes the sound. Oh, I don't know. I don't this know linguistics. This is really off topic. Um, <laughs> hello, hi, welcome. So, the question for this episode is from the September 2013 mm-hmm. paper. It's from the general paper one. It's question 19, mm-hmm. and it is defend kitsch. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> Defend kitsch. Defend kitsch. Katie, tell me why you were drawn to this question. Tell me about yeah. kitsch. Tell me about defending it. Okay, yeah. So um, 
part of my dissertation, actually, um, I'll keep talking about my dissertation throughout this Do whole it, podcast because it's consuming my life, is um, is an exploration of, of kitsch in relation to adaptation um, and in theatre. Um, and um, I think a really a big thing for me is... is Nope, nope, sounds like a wanker. Um, you can listen, listen, here at the example, we encourage wanking. <laughs> we encourage wankers and oh, wanking yeah. of all types, of all description. Yeah, okay, great. I'll keep that in mind. Be the most wanker, Katie, that you can be. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so my dissertation, quite a lot of my dissertation is about the defence of kitsch. Um, I'm looking at um adaptations of medieval literature in um tv and film and theater and a big thing that has stuck out to me is is the role of kitsch in um making work accessible um mm. so yeah I'm, I'm really interested in in, in kitsch as a concept uh, yeah okay i feel like the best place to start is really just what is kitsch for those listening Oof. Tell them what kitsch is. What is your personal definition of kitsch? Yeah. Um, so kitsch is an art. It's an art form. It's an aesthetic form that is defined usually by stuff that is uh, generally ugly to the to the general public, but is is revered or enjoyed because it is ugly. So for the for the express purpose that it is generally tasteless mm. um or or valueless um i think another word for kitsch is like sentimental like quite often they okay. go together yeah 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 okay. so that so it's that kind of thing of like something that that in the in the public eye or in the usual eye or in the usual artistic eye is seen as um something ugly and without value um mm. that people love because it is funny yeah and silly and camp of course um and yeah, that, that 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 that's kind of a a definition of of kitsch, I suppose. Nice. Yeah. This is the first episode I've had to do research for. I've done I've done some reading into kitsch, and something that struck me in some of the sort of reading I've done about kitsch is it sort of talks about it being in bad taste. Yeah. Um, something very interesting I learned. Let me see if I can find it. It's the etymology of the word kitsch okay okay the history of kitsch from my sort of brief research about it it sort of comes into use in the 1860s among munich artists and dealers to describe cheap art yeah 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 and it's uh, it's doesn't seem to be a set a history of the word itself it seems to be something that is debated but i think the most common one is it comes from the german word kitchen meaning to cheapen or to make do and the german word verkitchen which means sort of to flog i think it's sort of kind of del boy bit del boy bit of del yeah. boy kind of flogging down the market and nice yeah bit of hooky gear <laughs> <laughs> so kitsch is defined by something being ugly bad yeah, yeah why do people why are people drawn to things that are kitsch if it's considered bad that's a really good question thank um, you thank you i think i think we i think people are drawn to things that um I suppose it's in in a way of kind of looking for. Um, I'm trying to phrase this. Actually, I'm going to take a moment to think about this. 
do it, take your moment. We'll, we'll play moment. some uh, sort of lift music here. A little bit of music. That's kitsch music. Oh my god! Kitsch music, guys. Kitsch music. I think I think a lot of the time with kitsch, it's that it's it's making fun of or it's making pastiche of mm. um, things that are usually considered high culture and making them okay and making them easier to get hold of easier to 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 make their own easier to change into something that 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 they feel like is representative to them i think mm-hmm. um i think also like it makes people feel a kind of silly joy mm. do you know what i mean like like i um i did a play where a lot of the design was was specifically about being as kitschy as possible oh fun um, My, what was the play about uh, what was it yeah, it was, called, about it. Oh my god! Okay, shameless plug. Um, so mm. it's, it was called In Good Spirits, and it went to Vault Festival earlier this year, and oh, wow. uh, it was about ghosts from different time periods living in this house, and the house is going to be demolished. How do they navigate the house being demolished? And in order to capture this kind of timelessness that we were going yeah. for, we like lent really hard into Kitsch because Kitsch is timeless. I think there's a kind of there's a kind of recognizability, there's a kind of relatability to kitsch yeah. in it being cheap and it being accessible. I think that idea of timelessness is really interesting yeah. in relation to kitsch because a lot of it is things that have gone out of fashion mm. and then have come back around to yeah. finding an appreciation. So I think is the Y2K trend <gasps> kitsch because you know sort of a few years ago people going oh my god can you believe we were dressing like this in the 2000s and when I say we I don't mean me because I was a child um me too, don't worry but now it's sort of come back around mm. hasn't it and people I, it, in in my research of kitsch and in my understanding of kitsch there seems to be um a relation to the trend cycle yeah oh my god absolutely I think yeah, trend cycle. I think Y2K is a, is a really interesting example because it's one of those trends that has, it, you know, went so hard out of fashion mm. and has come back around so quick. Yeah. That you don't get from other from other trends. Um, and I wonder if kitsch then is about intention because I don't know about you, but when I see somebody doing the Y2K um, fashion stuff now, yeah. um, I, I know nothing fashion mm-hmm. um but if they they look like they're doing it with a level of kind of um tongue-in-cheek intentionality there is that feeling in me where I'm like oh that's silly that's great yeah whereas if somebody's doing it kind of like as a high fashion thing I'm more likely to kind of go oh yeah whatever. Mm. whereas I'm more drawn to what might feel like a more kind of humor um not humor but like um intentionally understanding that the way you're dressing is a little bit silly Mm. and there's something really fun about that and something really um like oh I could do that and I can do that and it would make me feel good interesting so how how tell me about sort of your dissertation and how this related to yeah medieval literature (laughs) there is a very famous uh old English poem called Beowulf and I won't assume anyone knows it because I'm not going to assume anything about anyone um and to assume is a whole thing, um, but so there's this there's this poem called Beowulf uh, that's that's a lot of people have to study it at kind of GCSE level or, or like um, in secondary school or maybe at A level or they've come across it 
at some point in their lives there's loads yeah. of like comic books of it and all of that stuff it's been you know it's from the 10th century so they've had time yeah to make comics it's all about the the problem of adaptation so the, the title of the dissertation is the problem of adaptation beowulf in the 21st century um and i'm exploring the kind of pitfalls of 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 beowulf adaptations why why do we care about beowulf um why do we keep adapting it and why are most of the adaptations shit um mm. and there is this one that i came across called a thousand years of baggage it's a musical okay well they call it a song play so i'm gonna call it a song play okay okay um, we'll use that tomin- we'll term- their tom <laughs> terminology <laughs> oh my i feel like i'm having a stroke we <laughs> we will use their terminology we'll use their terminology thank you very yeah, much you did it thank you very much out of you um <laughs> so there's this song play um <laughs> and it's written by um this guy called Jason Craig, um, and the music is by Dave Malloy. Um, <gasps> yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know this. Yeah. I am. I was already very invested. I'm now so much more invested. Yeah, right? I love Dave Malloy. Isn't he the best? He's doing the witch at the National Theatre. Yeah, yeah. He Are you is. excited for that? I'm so excited for oh that. Oh my god, let's go together. Let's go. But yeah, so so he. It was one of the first musicals that he ever wrote the music for, um, and so much of the musical is about like navigating um how we tell stories and the methods we use to tell stories especially ones that have like this massive academic culture around them because Beowulf like at this point in time okay is so like it's it is like the university medieval literature canon yeah massive canon yeah like the canon Mm. um you can't avoid it and people fucking hate that and fair enough sure like fair enough um and so their their kind of thing was that they wanted to um have fun with a story that that has for so long been seen as this like literary art Mm. um and they and one of the methods that they use for that um they don't expressly say that it's kitsch but that's what they're doing yeah the entire thing is a kind of kitschy pastiche of musical theatre and of medieval literature. This brings me to a really interesting point. So I, we, th- this is camp, so it's, yeah. I'd say, parallel to oh, kitsch. Oh, massively. So Susan Sontag's Notes on Camp mm-hmm. um, is a list listicle where she tries to define the sensibility of camp. And it's a, a really interesting read. Mm. It was the basis for the 2019 Met Gala, which everyone has an opinion about. Here are a few quotes. The pure examples of camp are unintentional. Mm. They are dead serious. Intending to be campy is always harmful. She also says one must distinguish between naive camp and deliberate camp. Pure camp is always naive. Camp which knows itself to be camp, then she puts in brackets, camping is usually less satisfying. Hmm. This is so interesting. Yeah. Do you agree? Do you think it's satisfying if people are trying to be kitschy, to be campy? I really understand what um, lovely, lovely Susan Sontag is getting at. I, I really, I actually really like what Susan Sontag is saying. Um, and I think I understand her point in that if if something is done with a level of deliberateness, often it, it takes away from the kind of, 
the silliness, the joy, yeah. the the sensibility of of kind of stumbling across something and going, uh, this is camp. Yeah. I think in the naivety I re- I really I really enjoy what Season Sontag is saying. Mm-hmm. Um in the in that to have a kind of pure camp, there is a level of naivety because I think in that naivety, um, in that kind of being completely sincere, there can be something really beautifully expressive and mm. silly and unburdened about that. Yeah. And that if you are aiming aiming to be kitschy, aiming to be campy, mm. often that can fall on its face. And you can feel like you're, you're working too hard for something that that your audiences might not. And you know, you know, again, yeah. I'm getting at. Is it sort of? It's sort of like films that are trying to be bad on purpose. Yeah, yeah like yeah, Sharknado. Yeah, like Sharknado, and like no, but I don't think Sharknado. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Sharknado is trying to be bad. I think in the later, the later the ones, later yes. installations and of that's Sharknado, why you don't is trying remember to be them. bad. So why you don't remember any I rem- of them? I mean, I do remember Ali- Abby Lee Miller being eaten by a shark. <gasps> Abby Lee Miller's in one of the Sharknados. She gets eaten by a shark. In which one? Free, oh my I'm going to say. Okay, I'm going to watch that tonight. But I mean, <laughs> I, it feels like... Do I don't think when they were making that first Sharknado film, mm. they were trying sincerely to make a good film. No. They, they weren't putting their hearts in, into it. Mm. Tommy Wiseau's The Room. Oh, hang on. A camp classic. Camp classic. Kitsch classic. Kitsch classic. He wholeheartedly was trying to make a good film. He was. He truly believed in The Room. He still believes in it today. He's in on the joke a little bit, but also still believes he made a good film, I think. This is why I think that Tommy Wiseau is a camp icon. And The Room is so much so. more enjoyable because he believes wholeheartedly in what he is saying. Absolutely. So, do in this, uh, in 1000 Years of Baggage, mm-hmm. are they trying to be campy and kitsch or are they just making Mm. something in earnest do you think they are intentionally trying for camp or were they just having fun here's what i think they're doing tell me oh i will um (laughs) is they are they're doing comedy they're making comedy they're doing a comedic play song play musical Mm -hmm. with no money okay and so what does that very low budget it enables kitsch because kitsch is an ex- I think an accessible art form. Mm. It it requires a level of cheapness. It, yeah, require per, like absolutely requires. So I don't think what they were going for was oh this is kitsch this is this is camp this is pastiche. Mm. But what I think has happened is that by having no budget by working within what they had by going oh this is silly like yeah. we don't have the money for this so we're gonna we're gonna throw things at the wall we're gonna create comedy they've created something that is, is genuinely beautiful mm-hmm. but is pure kitsch and i think it does require a level of sincerity you you've got to be you're not out here being like oh this is kitsch this is shit this is whatever you're going oh this is kitsch and this is brilliant Mm. like what i'm doing i i believe in this and i love this yeah and i have no money to do it but my god am i going to throw things at the wall it's going to be funny and you're going to love it you've got to have self-belief you've got to wholeheartedly throw yourself yeah we've touched on notes on camp we first started talking about kitsch yeah. um, and you were telling me about your dissertation. My understanding of kitsch was just sort of 
a synonym for camp yeah. and they, I, I sort of thought they were one and the same what mm. what's your opinion on that are there what are the distinctions between kitchen camp I think there's a necess- obviously a necessarily queer element to camp that doesn't have to be present in kitsch interesting um based on the kind of co- the culture that camp has emerged from mm. I think it necessitates um and how do you how then do you do you define queerness? But like a like a queer dimension. I mean, queer dimension. Let's bring up Sontag again. She talks uh, about gender and queerness mm. in notes on camp. She says, as a taste in persons, camp responds particularly to the markedly attenuated and to the strongly exaggerated. The androgenine is certainly one of the greatest images of camp sensibility allied to the camp taste for the androgynous is something that seems quite different but isn't a relish for the exaggeration of sexual characteristics and personality mannerisms the corny flamboyant female exaggerated he-manness something that else she says a bit later on which i found so interesting camp is the triumph of the epicene style i had to google what epicene means it means sexless oh and then she talks about the convertibility of a man in quotation marks and woman in quotation marks person in quotation marks thing in quotation marks there seems reading it i mean she brings up oscar wilde in the essay camp has a distinctly queer tinge i'm surprised to hear that you don't think that's particularly as translated in in kitsch Kitsch. yeah i think i think to me camp is is has a big human element um camp has a human element and a human a, a queer human element whereas kitsch is is in my kind of understanding of it is something that is it um, emerges from art emerges from aesthetics okay. and then and then maps onto other dimensions that's Whereas a really kind interesting of camp comes at it from the human in 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 my kind of understanding of it yeah wow that's really interesting <laughs> that's really really interesting both camp and kitsch in my sort of uh research they seem to be concerned with the decorative mm-hmm. and the exaggerated what i noticed in writing about camp versus kitsch kitsch is often a lot more concerned with decoration and yeah. art yeah. and what i noticed is people talking about art being kitsch yeah and camp being performative yeah yeah how can kitsch be applied to performance gosh i think i think in my in in my kind of view of it, I wouldn't describe um, Thousand Years of Baggage as camp, but I would describe it as kitsch. Why? That's such a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think because there isn't that complete naivety. Mm. There isn't that Tommy Wiseau complete sincerity of the room okay there is an understanding in baggage i call it baggage for the dissertations i'm going to call it baggage go ahead um there is an understanding in baggage that what they're doing is aesthetically cheap and what they're doing is um comedic and Mm. um and i think that's what pushes it more to kitsch than to camp also i don't think there's a queer element to thousand years of baggage um i think um 
I think, uh, yeah, maybe, 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 maybe a queer element doesn't have to apply for something to be camp, but definitely in my understanding of it. It has a specific, I mean, she talks, let me, there's a, oh, Sontag, there's a really funny quote. Oh, here it is. The peculiar relation between camp taste and homosexuality has to be explained. While it's not true that camp taste is homosexual taste, there is no doubt a peculiar affinity and overlap. Homosexuals, by and large, constitute the vanguard and the most articulate audience of camp. Mm. Yeah. That's... Who knows why? Who knows why? Who knows why? I think we know why. Yeah. Exaggeration. Yeah. Performativity. Performativity. You know, non-binaryness. Not as an identity, but as a being outside of binary. Yeah. I think there's there's something really interesting to be said for camp a lot of the time is concerned with the exaggeration of binary roles. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's it's really weird sometimes how queer people can be drawn to really hyper-masculine and hyper-femme portrayals Mm. that a lot of the times are like somewhat misogynistic or oh my god yeah uh, homophobic i think sometimes it's a strange thing we'll be really drawn to them it's reappropriative isn't it we, mm. we it's 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 reclaiming um forms of identity that have been yeah. leveled against the queer community yeah you know you you've, you know people who who aren't man enough therefore um are ostracized mm. um or you know aren't aren't femme enough and therefore aren't women and yeah. you know it's, it's that it's it's that reclamation of of those identities and going we're going to perform them and we're going to perform them better than you mm. and these are ours now and we can do what we want with them that's what i think yeah that's nice. my two cents love it let's get back onto kitsch yeah, and baggage cool. how do how do they translate beowulf where does beowulf come into baggage yeah it's really interesting what they do with beowulf as a as a dude as a guy Okay. Um, so Beowulf is in the medieval story. He's a warrior. Mm. He's a big old dude. Mm-hmm. He rips off a guy's arm with his bare hands. Yummy, yummy, yummy. He fights naked. He's a man's Ooh. man. He's a man's man. He's a man's man. Yeah. Aren't we all? Haven't we all ripped off other people's arms and fought naked? Yeah. We've all done that. I do that every day. It's a regular Saturday night. I run into the forest yeah. naked and... Rip off people's Tear arms. off people's arms. We should do that together sometime. Oh my god, we should. <laughs> and then we could go for brunch oh afterwards. My god, yeah, let's do it early in the morning. Mimosa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think it's interesting. So, so Beowulf is this man's man, um, but he's also described as being like the meekest and mildest and kindest of men. Ooh. So he's this very kind of non non-stereotypical stereotype yeah interesting there's that dichotomy yeah look at me using academic words but yeah he's like this big burly dude he's almost quite an androgynous character could you say you could yeah could you say he's almost outside of the binary uh i suppose well interesting you say that um because it's interesting what they do in then in baggage is this guy Mm. comes in and it's played by the guy who wrote the play and he's He's not a man's man. And he's Beowulf. And he's Beowulf. Ooh. You know, he's he's not he's not ripped, he's not jacked. He's kind of uh, he's, you know, 
wearing a toupee and he's he's got his trackies on and he's strutting around and he's doing a little dance. Oh. Um, but he's also, at the same time, being called the manliest of men. And so they're really playing with what defines like the manliest man. So in Baggage, how do they define the manliest man? There's this song that is called Hey, It's That Guy, which they do this whole... They're not reading directly from the poem. They're re- they're, they've, they've made this up. Um, um, and they're you know, talking about how he is the the strongest man in the world. And he's standing there behind this sheet. And he looks huge. Like mm. He looks like big, bulky, burly man. And then, like the start of a WWE um, kind of fight, whatever. I've never watched WWE. But he like, bursts through this paper. And he's just a guy. <laughs> like he's not like he's just ken he's just ken this is the second episode in a row that i have made that joke (laughs) as you should and i am proud as you should be and then but he's and you know he's holding a microphone and he's and he's there going um and there's the one it's absolutely brilliant and i think it's really interesting in the conversation we're having where the lyrics are look at this body this is my body sir i am a man sir i have a body oh my god right that fun and i would say that's camp yeah but i wouldn't say that the whole play is then camp Mm. you see what i mean yeah let's talk more about the adaptation of beowulf so Mm. they so number one beowulf himself in the original yeah somewhat androgynous yeah and then in baggage they translate it to be just a guy yeah, so I think it's interesting. Um, it, I guess you have to take into consideration this. Oh God, um, the fact that what has happened to Beowulf throughout um, adaptation is that oh yeah, talk, talk about yeah, the, yeah. talk about the adaptation talk of Beowulf. all the adaptations of Beowulf. He has gone from like this. What he is in this poem is this kind of like yeah, big strong man's man who is also really kind and really gentle and would never do anything wrong in his life. Um, but at the end of these, a victim of his own hubris and whatever. But he's a guy. He's like a man's man, but also lovely. Um, and then in adaptations, they have gone, oh no, he's like a dude. He's like a real dude. He's a guy, like, like he's, he's, he's like the that hardest sort of, of exaggerated man. he-man-ness. They make, they, they he-manify Sontag, him. That Sontag is talking about. They do. Yeah. They he-manify him. All these adaptations, that's what they do. So are those adaptations pure camp? Because they're taking on this exaggerated manliness and portrayal of gender and they're oh not God. doing it to be um subversive to be yeah. subversive or ironic they're doing it wholeheartedly and believe. with their chests because they believe in this image of manliness yeah that sort of conan the barbarian he-man manliness yeah oh my god are those adaptations camp katie are yes. they camp yes god yes they are um <laughs> yeah no absolutely i'd say they're camp Absolutely, I'd say they're camp. Ooh, so Beowulf has always had a sort of history with campness. Yeah, 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 definitely. Now you've put it that way, I'm like, yeah, fucking yeah, they do. Fuck yeah. You, you just crack the case. Just crack that wide open. Yeah, and so it's interesting then that then when you get to this song play, which came out in like 2008, so it's not like modern, 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 but it's pretty, pretty modern, is that they've kind of gone, oh, we see you. We see this camp. And we're going to flip the camp over. Like what? They, they take it and flip it on his head. Yeah, they really, they really do. And so would you say that you're sort of saying, I think it's 
kitchen not camp is that the kitchenness coming through that they're in t- that they're trying to yeah they're they're, ta- they're grabbing the campness by the balls and doing something with it yeah that, that yeah i think they're, they're kind of yeah i guess they're trying to highlight to us as an audience they're going look at all this this has all been camp this has all been performative this is all yeah been, this isn't this is this is the whole the whole thing mm. and they've gone let's do something fun with that and i think that's what makes it kitsch specifically mm. is they're making they're kind of cheapifying accessible making accessible um as I've said, this is I've done some research please, this episode. Please. Um and I came across a very interesting essay mm. called Kitsch and Aesthetic Education. It was written in nineteen eighty nine, I believe. Great. Um and it was written by Jay Morial and Jay Loy. Double J. And I was really interested in how they talk about Kitsch because they're quite disparaging about it and i'd be interested to get your thoughts yeah so the first thing that they identify is that kitsch is distinctly a result of the industrial revolution Mm. before manufacturing only the wealthy and the aristocratic had the means to be well educated cultured and intellectual and so to participate in the world of fine arts most people were kept busy with the simple necessities of life and had neither the education, time, money or interest to patronise the arts, patronise the arts. Um, Patronise those arts. And what they say is with the Industrial Revolution, the middle class and the lower classes can start affording mass-produced copies of fine art and imitations of art. Do you have any thoughts on the relationship between kitsch and class? Oh my God, yeah. So kitsch is often defined as being imitative, um, imitations of um, of the classics, imitations of the canon, imitations of things that have high class value, and making them accessible in a kind of cheap form, in a you know more mass produced form to people. Yeah, like this this says of people of 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 lower middle classes, mm. and I think maybe it's a whole conversation about um capitalism and 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 materialism but i think in its purest form kitsch is a way of democratizing access to art Ooh, for sure because because if 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 kitsch is the ability to to make things with no money to make things of of value with no money that are fun and silly and you know can mean something to people because they are because they are like the thing that is meaningful let's say in this scenario then then all that all that kitsch is doing is going you who's never had access to these things have access to them it's not the real Mm. thing but does that really matter you have it and you can see it and you have Mm. access to it and you can do it i think it's really interesting the relationship between art and class and just like culture and class and once Mm. something is accessible to the lower classes it then gets this label of tacky yeah of gaudy and through that 
of kitsch. Yeah. So, I mean, talking about, like, the defense of kitsch. Is kitsch a sort of label that is given to things that are no longer considered high class, have been handed down to the lower classes or are now accessible to be imitated by the lower classes and therefore they're they're sort of said oh it's kitsch now it's not fun now or is kitsch the label that comes after that uh thing is uh described as tacky yeah i mean kitsch is a derogatory term Mm. kitsch in in, in its kind of purest sense i kind of you know we've been saying this throughout the whole thing we've been going kitsch like woo woo kitsch yeah but kitsch kitsch is a derogatory term for things Kitsch is a derogatory term for things of that have lower value because they are cheap and they are imitative, mm. and that is something that's been that has been put onto these things by people I think of higher classes who have gone, oh well, yeah, exactly as you say, or oh, we don't want this thing anymore, so you can have it, mm. and now it's kitsch, and now it's tacky, now it's gaudy, now it's too much. If you have it, why do you have it? Mm. And it's it's this, yeah, it's it, it's disparaging people from from lower socioeconomic backgrounds to have things that have that have been of value yeah to to a higher class at some point in time now it's touching your hands now it's tacky yeah now it's tacky kitsch and aesthetic education is Mm. such an interesting article because it's really really disparaging about kitsch and it like i said it's from uh yes 1989 okay quite a while ago um and i think it makes some interesting almost like predictions about like the trend cycle Ooh, okay and it talks about how kitsch is dictated by advertising interesting because so sort of people buy what is in vogue Mm. um or the lower classes are buying what is in vogue and what they are told is vogue by advertising in in all of its forms whether that is sort of direct buy this thing or whether that's influencers Mm. or something they've seen on tv yeah let me you know what let me pull out a quote from this article most people today don't see planned obsolescence as a marketing gimmick they embrace it for it gives them a chance to make new purchases and a good part of their identity lies in the act of purchasing for many people who make nothing themselves shopping represents at least some connection to the world of material things and perhaps as a greater boon some structure to their daily lives they can shape their identities too of course by their association with what they buy this is sort of aligning kitsch with trends i think it's such an interesting thing that it comes from 1989 and this feels so relevant to sort of shein and oh my God, yeah. tiktok micro trends where we've really seen the trend cycle just go so quickly and one thing that is considered in trend one week is now considered tacky out of it kitsch the next week i'm wondering what your thoughts on kitsch being directly a result of capitalism and trend i think that's so interesting and not a way that i would have thought about it before this this essay really shook me i think it's really interesting i think definitely what you say about the 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 sheehan stuff is with the trend cycle moving so fast that things become kitsch don't become kitsch become tacky don't become tacky become good become not good in within weeks yeah um i mean you can buy something on shein and then by the time it arrives to your door it's no longer no longer what's in on trend yeah. no longer trendy which i think is just crazy and i wonder if that's i wonder if that's dissolving what k- 
kitsch is Ooh. then i wonder Ooh. if kitsch doesn't really apply anymore the essay that i drew that quote from is really interesting and mm. it it really clashed with what my perspective of kitsch was because yeah, for me thinking about kitsch i was thinking about like camp and fun and aesthetics yeah, and yeah. buying things that are ugly but i love them because they're ugly and it was really talking about like capitalism yeah, and its relationship to kitsch yeah and it talks about kitsch in a very disparaging way. It says, we don't want anything that calls for attention to detail, interpretation, analysis, or any other reaction other than I like it. Interesting. So in that, it, it says that kitsch is sort of a passive experience that yeah, is a direct result thing. of consumer culture and capitalism. Oof. And I really, I can see where they're coming from, from their mm. time of writing. Like, look at the kind of, moving into the 90s. Yeah. Where, where what was going on you know. then in terms of consumer culture. Like, you can absolutely understand the disparagement. But I think in the moment that we're at now, where consumer culture is so, everybody is aware of consumer culture. I wonder if kitsch has been recalibrated. Like, what kitsch means is different now. Mm, it almost feels like another trend yeah I did a little bit of um I went on social media just before we recorded just to see like okay if I type in kitsch into tiktok into pinterest Mm. what aesthetics come up and it is it is this sort of maximalism maximalism massive gaudy it I wonder if it's turned into another trend yeah kind of kitsch a, a kind of trend all of its own mm yeah, it's really interesting, and that that I under, completely understand that article, and it's 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 ent- entirely valid, and it's like rewiring my brain. Yeah, currently, how do you feel like that kind of view of kitsch as a sort of capitalist byproduct, sort of the cheap imitations being fed to lower classes? How does that fit in or clash with mm. baggage? I think it's. Ooh, it's really got me. It's really got me thinking. I think there's definitely something to be said about if if kitsch is if kitsch arises from the industrial revolution, which it does, mm-hmm. and it is this way of of giving of the masses, the the general population, having access to high art, yeah, having access to things of value, to then have it vilified as consumer culture in the 1980s is a really interesting progression yeah definitely and i think there's a lot that could be said about about that but i yeah it's that 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 passing down that passing down of of stuff of going this is no longer valuable to us so you can have it you poor little peasant boys Mm. and then and then a hundred years later two academics come on come on here and go oh, well, then capitalism is all your fault. I mean, this really gets into the... I found the question itself, defend Defend it, yeah. Like, what was that? Really interesting. And I I think, like, this is a perfect example of, like, maybe what Kitsch needs defending from. Like, Mm. that sort of idea that, oh, if art isn't serious uh, and dark and bleak, then it's not worthwhile exactly like why can't we have why can't we just have fun exactly and i think that's why people you know you i think that's why people like bloody warhol and like basquiat and Mm. um banksy and all of those like those like pop artists yeah 
was so in this time period you mean you look at 1989 yeah were like either at the top of their game i can't i don't, don't know what the dates are but like either at the top of their game or being like actively vilified yeah. for being consumerist i it's so interesting you bring up andy warhol because as i was reading as i was doing some research into kitsch and looking at this idea of like the democratization and consumerism democratization of art and consumerism that really that is exactly what andy warhol was making art about i mean yeah. there's a quote from andy warhol where he's like I'm really fascinated. Is, I don't remember exactly, but he's talking about, oh, the, the the same Coke that Marilyn Monroe drinks is the same Coke that you drink. Yeah. I mean, he grew up, I think he was Philadelphia, yeah, Pennsylvania, yeah, yeah. like really poor son of immigrants. So he was really concerned with consumerism. Yeah. I think it's I think it's so interesting the fact that like people like the the, the mass population getting 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 the blame in, the, in a thing like this for kitsch um for creating kitsch for being mm. consumers when i don't i don't think the wanting to have things that are low art but make us happy or having access to low art that is silly yeah or makes us laugh yeah is necessarily a marker of of society crumbling to capitalism no. especially not in this moment I think we need fun. Yeah. If anything, I go like, I think crumbling to capitalism would be to give in and sort of only be creating works of art that are bleak and devoid of all hope. I think it is so important to have art that is fun and is, yeah. Yeah, like, no, no, I get you. Like, I'm so bored of like constantly being told AI is going to take you job and everything's horrible yeah. and bleak no let's just have some fucking fun and i think also kitsch isn't kitsch is the rejection of trend following Ooh, is it not yeah it's the picking Almost. up on the past trend it's the picking up on the thing that was one before Ooh. it was the it's the it's the going this is this is low culture and people don't want this anymore but i want this yeah so is is kitsch is kitsch not the opposite of 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 of, of this in that sense of like it's actively rejecting trend culture or, or just always being one step behind on purpose or or celebrating in that passing of time Cele Ce yeah. celebrating changing of trends or not yeah. celebrating the trend cycle not for the thing that it's creating but for what it's left behind yeah. finding value in what is no longer considered on trend or good taste Exactly, it's a celebration of bad taste. It's the, mm. it's the celebration of things that that our culture and our society, um, because we live in a society. Oh my god! Oh my god! Society. Um, that our society has gone. We don't want this anymore. This isn't. This isn't making us money. This isn't giving us value. This isn't um, aiding in the lovely train of oil towards destruction. Mm. We don't want that anymore. And Kitch goes. Well, you think this is ugly, but it but it's mine now. I feel like that's where the queerness really comes in for me. Mm. That's why, to me, kitsch, I think, is so queer. is because it's taking this lost and abandoned thing that we as a society have decided has been bad taste and no longer good. And we're saying, but isn't that great? Mm. Isn't that, look how ridiculous and big this is and in your face. Like, it's yeah. a celebration of ugliness yes yeah, or what society perceives as ugliness yeah because how can we say something is ugly what that is totally based on that's totally subjective it's classist 
Ooh, baby. Who decides who decides what's ugly but the people who are in charge? Or the people who have access to deciding mm. what ugly is and isn't. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm really we talk we sort of broken down kitsch quite a lot. I'm really interested in the first part of the question. It's a yeah. really interesting question. Two words. Defend kitsch. We sort of touched on it already, but why does kitsch need defending? Mm-hmm. And what are we defending it from? You mm-hmm. white knight of kitsch. And the white knight of kitsch. Oh my god. Or I feel like kitsch wouldn't have a white knight. I feel no. like it'd have like a pink knight. Like a or, trash knight. Or yeah, or like a knight, a rainbow knight or maximalist knight of kitsch. Neon knight. Oh my god, neon, yes please. Give me that. Fuck Christopher Nolan. <laughs> Fuck the Dark Knight. <laughs> and the Neon Knight. The Neon Knight of Kitsch. Riding in on my skateboard. <laughs> <laughs> What's like the kitschest um, kind of vehicle you could have? The kitschest mode of transportation? Unicycle? Ooh. No, no, no. no, no. no, no Penny no. farthing. Oh, stop it now. Stop it with that big old wheel. <gasps> or, oh, there's this guy who like rides around on this like ridiculous bike in South London and it's got like feathers and <gasps> I can't remember his name. For the life of me, I cannot remember his name, but like he's known in South London and he just rides around on this feathers. like campy like bike that's covered in feathers and streamers and like he wears a top hat and it's gold and it's sparkly that he yeah. is the fucking because that's sincerity yeah. yeah and he has an instagram account and in it he <gasps> says like i do it to make people happy i want oh my god it's silly but i want to make people smile where wherever they're like walking along the pavement i want to make them smile that's as they're walking kitsch. down the street that's kitsch bro yeah kitsch is a healer would you say kitsch is a healer. it's bringing happiness I think so. Mm. So yeah. So sorry. The the what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I totally went That's on the a tangent. Night of then yeah. the neon knight of kitsch. Why does kitsch need defending? Okay. And who or what from? Okay. I think kitsch needs defending from falling into exactly what um, the article uh, kitchen and aesthetic education is trying to say about the role of kitsch. Um, I would say that it is very easy to fall mm. into the pitfall of going, kitsch is a marker of a consumerist system. By going into kitsch or accepting kitsch, we accept that we are passive players in a capitalist system and we're hurtling towards our own doom and everything's going to go to shit. I think kitsch can be, and in the same way as camp, kitsch can be a way of making accessible things that have historically been inaccessible, have been gatekept, have been shunned, Mm. have been rejected. Mm. um, And putting that power to create, to express, to explore, to play, to have fun, in the hands mm. of people who wouldn't usually have access to those things. Yeah. That's what I think. I'm wondering if you could give me some essential kitsch reading or a, a, a reading lit- list or a essential kitsch viewing. Essential kitsch viewing. For people who yeah. are living bleak and sad lives that are grey yeah. and need some kitsch in it where do they start in your opinion okay you've given us a thousand years of baggage already which I'm absolutely going to be going away and like obsessing over it. for the next few weeks uh, okay I would say um, I can't remember her name now but 
there is a there is a book that I think is called Towards Kitsch um, or Towards a Kitsch Art Form um, by a woman called I think her name is Justania Stepien. Okay. Um, last name is definitely Stepien. Um, I can't remember the rest of her name, but um, I'm sure you can find that somewhere. And that's a really interesting um, look at Kitsch and also camp. Um, Ooh. And it talk and it's it's all in all things. So it's in in art, in horror film. Uh, that's a massive thing. Kitchen horror, camp and horror. Of yeah. Course. Um, all throughout different different medium, uh, different media. Um, it's it's fantastic. It's a fantastic book. Uh, I would say also uh, the Love Witch. Ooh, yes. She that's that's camp. That's kitsch. That's why the best. I think it's both of those things. Um. Yeah, I'm trying to think about all any other reading that I've done. I think, yeah, I'd say those are my two my two main things that I'm like mm. immediately coming to my head. Obviously, Susan Sontag's notes on camp, yeah, uh, it's excellent. Even though it's not, it's not kitsch, it's camp. But yeah, it, you know, there's a lot of overlap. What specifically about? Uh, let's go on the Love Witch. What mm. um, can you talk a bit about kitsch and the Love Witch? A little bit of rhyming there for God, you. Yeah, a little bit of sex, a little rhyming for you. Why do you think that should be defined and why do you think that should be known as a camp film or a kitsch film, excuse me? The, 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 the use of kind of maximalist imagery, the kind of tongue-in-cheek approach to genre film, the way, you know, the, the kind of, again, this is camp, but the kind of hyper-feminization of, of, of the love witch, that love, that blue, blue eyeshadow and the, yeah. and the liner, like, oh my God. It has this kind of necessarily queer dimension, and the the colors and the colors are beautiful, and everything is very kind of. It feels very tacky. It feels like everything yeah. is plastic. It, it's, it's is the Love Witch the one that's made? It was made in like twenty twelve, but it was made to look like a film from the sixties. I think so. I can't actually remember. I haven't. I haven't like consumed it in ages. I kind of just said it because I was like, oh yeah, that's that the one. one. Yeah, I think so. I think my. <laughs> My designer, knows, I say my designer, um, my friend Arno, who's a designer, knows a lot more about um, kind of that kind of tacky aesthetic in things yeah. like Love Witch than I do. Um, Why the fuck are you here out. then? Yeah, I know. Why am on? I here? Um, shout out to Arna. Love you. Um, but yeah, those. The, I think it's that kind of, yeah, that pastiche. It's pastiche, isn't it? Pastiche is mm. kitsch. I think pastiche is kitsch. Mm. We've spoken a bit about that hyper-feminization and hyper-masculine. Mas- masculinity hypermasculinity yeah yeah but not not butchness lesbians that hypermasculinity mm. what is the distinction between kitsch and just enforcing gender roles is kitsch just enforcing gender roles how if kitsch and camp are sort of things that look for these exaggerated uh portrayals of masculinity with super manly men and super feminine women is it not just enforcing gender roles or does it transcend that and how does it do that i think it's who's doing it and why i think definitely um this is why i think the the difference between um camp and kitsch is in intentionality um i think uh if camp is sincere yeah and naive then, yeah. then Kitsch can kind of know what it's doing to a degree. There needs to be a level of sincerity, I think, to in order to kind of pull it off. But I think with Kitsch, in the idea of kind of hyper, hyper-gendered performances, is, is who's doing it? Have a look at who yeah. who is performing it. Is this, is this, you know, 
like look at drag who who is who is doing this and why? What is what does their drag mm. look like? Why are they doing this? What is the what is the role of playing up this gender role? Is it to make a comment on the fact that that this is enforced on them? Is it to make a point that they if they wanted to they could be that? Yeah. Is it a way of going this this thing this this ex- this expression was is something that I am rejected from? So I'm going to play it up for comedy. I'm going to yeah. make you see how stupid this is. I'm yeah. going to make you see how pointless this is. It, it it actually I th- I think instead of enforcing gender roles, it dismantles gender roles as performative. Ooh, yeah. Not to not to not to bring on Judith Butler, Miss um, Butler. Get in here, Judith. Um, Get on in here. Yeah. So, so yeah, like it's it's very. I think it's 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 all down to who is doing it. Mm. Why are they doing it? What does it? What does what does their performance do? Gorgeous. I am going to bring this conversation about kitsch to a close. Okay. Can you give me your thesis statement? Defend kitsch. Okay. Give me your kitsch manifesto. Kitsch manifesto. Okay. My defense of kitsch is that kitsch is a democratizing art form. Kitsch is a way of accessing um, high culture through a necessarily low culture lens. Um with a level of intentionality to um create joy, create silliness, mm. um, sometimes make critical commentary on the nature of things. Before we close out the section, I just want to give you a quote uh from an essay called In Defense of Kitsch. Cool. It is by Ed Simon and it's on JSTOR Daily. Um Ooh, yeah. I'm gonna include a reading list in the description of this episode just because cool. I've I, I've really read just like so much amazing stuff <laughs> and I I'm definitely gonna send me some thousand mm-hmm. years of baggage stuff that's gonna get included. I just wanna share this quote because I think you'll really like it and it it was really refreshing to read after such a disparaging essay kitsch and aesthetic uh, education the essay speaks specifically about kitsch and religious iconography i know fun right fun kitsch should be understood not as a lack of taste but as the declaration of ownership over sacred things by the mass of humanity a shaker chair states certain beautiful things about god simplicity parsimony elegance silence but kitsch can say something about god as well glory complexity color grandeur that's a brilliant quote it's a gorgeous quote right beautiful i really like the idea of like the mass of humanity yeah kitsch is a unifier maybe kitsch is a unifier kitsch is the great leveler Mm. (laughs) i you know what i think two types of people in this world People who um, look at kitchen camp and they roll their eyes mm. and they put it down and they go, ugh, gross, disgusting. And then people who are right. Truly. People who say... Snaps for that one. Snaps. People who can just fucking have fun. Have fun. Have fun. I'm so tired of art having to be deep and dark and sad and grief. Have fun. Yeah, have fun. Let's play. Let's have a good time. Let's have a good time, bro. Yeah. Let's go rip <laughs> off arms in the woods. Let's get naked and rip yeah. off arms in the woods and be super masculine, but also meek and Easy shy. Mildly. And not like those other boys. Hey, Beowulf. Hey, Beowulf. <laughs> Katie. Cherry. 
While All Souls only allows up to two people to become fellows every year, here at the exam hall, we do not discriminate, we do not gatekeep. And so we have reviewed your application. And I am very happy to welcome you into the alumni of the exam hall. Oh my goodness. Welcome. Thank you so much. How does it feel? I feel so academic. Ooh. I feel so, so, so good. Ooh. Academic <gasps> and so good. That's exactly <laughs> what we are looking for. Now, if you get into All Souls, you get seven years to complete any research project you want you get funding you get salary you get board you get to study any subject you want at oxford and you get contacts with leading scholars and professionals in your field Mm. so my question to you katie you have seven years no financial barriers all these open doors all these resources what would you do with seven years of research I think a big thing for me as I've been doing my degree is I've always wanted to write an essay or write essays in a way that my my stepdad who does didn't even complete his GCSEs would be able to read and understand and I think I would really like to spend years of my life trying to demystify what it means to be an academic you know yeah um and I think I think it's really important that people have have access to knowledge and have access to um, absolutely and this is what this entire podcast is about yeah. isn't it have access to knowledge have access to the ability to not to not just read but discuss to discover uh, discover to to talk, to play, to 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 feel like their mind is worthy, like their mind is validated, mm. like they they have opinions and they're allowed to have opinions. Um, and I think a big important thing for me, if 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 a lot of my university experience didn't have to be writing for a rubric, writing for a marker who 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 has you know a wealth of knowledge far beyond what I've got and probably will ever have, but to be able to to write papers about things that 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 interest me, that make me feel joy, like like a dissertation on kitsch in Beowulf, mm. um, and be able to then write about these things um, and be allowed to write about these things in a way that I could then hand that to somebody who who doesn't have access to education. And we can talk about that and we can get them into those academic spaces because I think learning is so fun. Right? Academia is so fun. People do their best when they have the freedom to do what interests them and to be encouraged to understand. And this is what All Souls is doing, isn't it, really? It's giving Mm. you the ultimate freedom to do what you want. But the caveat is that you have to be, you have to jump through all of these hoops and already be at Oxford eventually. Yeah. Already. I think the greatest the greatest experience that we that we can we have as 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 people who who love to learn is being able to be in environments where 
us learning isn't something that we are punished for if we don't do right away if we take the time yeah if we need that time if we need that help if we need that space if we need extra resources we need that energy which hasn't massively answered your seven-year question but I think demystifying I mean my what I would love to do if I had seven years of research at All Souls is find a way to dismantle All Souls wow and disseminate that knowledge yeah spread it out just spread it out to render something like All Souls defunct which is you know that's what you're doing um yeah that's right i'm doing it that's what you're doing i'm doing the thing yeah camp classic angela bassett did the thing (laughs) i mean that's really some essential viewing if you if there's anyone out there who hasn't seen um ariana debose her bafta rap of all the leading ladies i think Mm. Not only is it her little pink jumpsuit, mm-hmm. it's also her hair. Mm. No one's talking about her haircut. Truly, it's, yeah. That is kitsch. It is That kitsch. outfit, that wrap, that hairstyle, kitsch, essential viewing. Couldn't agree more. Could not agree you more. You need to change your dissertation. I do. Yeah, I need to change it to Angela Bassett did the thing, an exploration <laughs> of kitsch in the BAFTA <laughs> opening rap by Ariana DeVos. Oh my God. Um, so you're talking about sort of like you would want to go in and dismantle all souls. How do you think we do that? How do we dismantle these institutions and spread this knowledge and bring it back to kitsch? How do we democratise it? I think a lot of it is language. Um, I mean, that's one thing. Um, I can go into, I'll go into another thing. If you phrase something in a way that you know a certain caliber of person is not going to understand, you know the kind of person that you're going to get. Yeah. Going for that opportunity. Yeah, I think a lot of these essays and academic writing, it's not accessible in the way it's written, is it? And it's, it's to keep up that status quo. Absolutely. And it's to make sure that the people who answer that question in the right way are the people who have understood those words and have understood that phrasing and have exposure already to that kind of language. Because if you're coming at that from from a perspective where you're encountering that language for the first time, you're on a back foot. Regardless of, of how quickly you pick that up, you've already lost a five minutes while you've been trying to work it out. That you know, Yeah. And you can extrapolate that to 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 all things. Yeah. And, and you know, I I'm I'm going back to so that that's one part is is language the way that we use language the way that we talk about these things the way that we give those questions to people give those opportunities to people is already alienating in its language but I think also like you think about something like All Souls um, which is an elite college within Oxford already I hadn't heard about All Souls and I don't think most people have no it's not it's not that well known about, I don't and, think. And why is that? I think, you know what? I think probably in academic circles it's known about. Yeah. I I hadn't heard about it until you told me. You know what I mean? So, and, it, and then you can, and then you can take that back. You can, you can really take that back to, to when you're in secondary school. What academic circle do you know about? Uh, so, a, a bit of context. So, I, I'm I'm from a, a lower socioeconomic background, um, benefit class, all of that lovely stuff. In the south of England, 
tucked away in a little village. That's where I'm from. I didn't know about any universities really other than Oxford or Cambridge. I knew that there was some near Southampton. I knew there was Southampton Uni. But that's all I really knew about. It was it was up to me to research other universities that I could send myself to. And you're instantly on the back foot, aren't you? Absolutely. But because if, like, if I think I have a real problem with institutions creative institutions academic institutions who are like well we have out we have these bursaries and we have these opportunities and we have Mm -hmm. these you know opportunities for people to you know we have this opportunity for creative young people to come in to give them opportunities but like something I always say is how am I meant to know about this exactly you've put it on your website you've put it on your Instagram I don't know you exist yeah how like if if people don't know these institutions and these opportunities are out there, they can't take them because the existence of these spaces themselves are gatekept. Absolutely, and it's it's that exact it's that exact thing. So the universities I knew about when when I was kind of coming up to say like GCSEs, mm. Oxford, Cambridge, maybe Manchester. Yeah, uh, you know the, the, those big universities and the ones that were and the one that was near me, which was Southampton Uni, and then there was Solent Uni, which is the arts uni, um, mostly arts uni, um, and that is all I knew. And then I, you know, you get you get to sixth form and you you go, but I'm not going to get into Oxford or Cambridge. And where do I go? Where do I? Go? And and, and I, I don't want to stay in my hometown. And I love learning and I love academia. But I don't know. I don't know where where, where I can go. Where, where and and for so many people, they then go. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna not go anywhere. Mm. As well as language, it's also, it's also the institutions making themselves. It's it it, it institutions a whole thing. The institutions they but, they need to make. They're not. Are they actively reaching out to? untapped groups and like or are are they actively reaching out to groups who aren't currently engaging in them and this is a massive thing or or (laughs) are are they just relying on what they've always relied on which is the The upper upper middle classes who go to grammar schools who go to private schools the people whose parents went to university and know how these things work absolutely and i I think that's, that's that's exactly what i'm getting at is it is if if the university the universities go oh but we want people from all backgrounds we want to accept people from all backgrounds we want to diversify um our pool of students but when what are you doing you're not to actually to actively do that yeah you're not coming to the to the to the schools that you are trying to target Mm. and that you know and i think that's so as well as language it's 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 visibility and that's why I think All Souls is able to stay the way it is. Because basically nobody knows that it exists. Unless mm. you are already in the right circles. In order to get in those already right circles, you already have to be in the right circles. When you already have to be in the right circles for that as well. And that comes down to class. Yeah. And I think that can be applied to every industry, especially, I think, you know, we're both in the theatre industry. Oh we're God, both yeah. in the creative industries. It's really hard to get your foot in the door. It's, it's terrible. It's, and yeah. but if your uncle 
ear, nose uh, director. If if your uh, dad went to grammar school uh, alongside, you know, the head of the English National Opera, that's not me indirecting anyone. That was me just pulling an example out, <laughs> of, out of my ass. Yeah. But like, unless you have these connections that can get you seen, yeah, it's really hard to get your foot in the door. And I think that's why it's so important to have spaces and institutions that are number one funded oh my god yeah. that have money behind them um and that are actively looking for people who don't have that in absolutely you need someone you need an advocate and you need someone to be your in yeah and and I think even when you're even when you are in this is something that my my housemate talks about all the time because we're from very similar kind of socioeconomic positions yeah. um but she's she's from the north and has come down to London and I'm from the south and I've come up to London and mm-hmm. it's a much shorter journey for me I can get home quite quick yeah she when coming to uni she she wants to be a teacher she wants to be a lecturer that's all she has ever wanted to do and so this is the right space for her and she knows that to be true but for half of her university experience she's been considering she considered dropping out because nobody was looking out for her she felt like she was completely on her own so she was in this space she was welcomed into this institution because they want people from this kind of background but none of her none of her family have gone to uni before her she's the only one that she knows that has got that has gone to uni she's from she's from so far away yes she's still from england but she's you know a 4 hour journey away from home on a train and there is there has been no one she's very shy as well but nobody has has gone i am here to support you as somebody who has not had access to education yeah. and has done this because you want it yeah it's that you've picked up on something that's just so true there which is like it's not enough to be getting people who historically haven't been in the room in the room it's also making sure that you're supporting them and yeah. that you're not assuming that they're going to have all the grammar private school knowledge that people coming from more privileged backgrounds would already have mm-hmm. it's it's taking away all of that academic language like you were saying and making it more understandable and accessible exactly because it's not as if these people not as if these people don't have the capability to perform well at university and you know using the massive scare it's, n- it's not performing that, yeah. well it's not that they don't have the brains because they obviously do if they got there exactly and now all you're doing is you're creating a hostile environment that they want to then leave. Mm, and it keeps people out. It keeps them out. And I mean, then I wonder if the question is, do I stay and suffer so that hopefully one day, maybe if I get in the room, I can be an advocate for these people? Or do I, in the name of self-preservation, just quit? Yeah, absolutely. And that that applies to any industry yeah especially the arts industry oh yeah. my god in the arts it feels like there's a lot of you need to suffer kind yeah. of mentality you should be suffering you need to suffer through yeah you need to be working day and night and it's like no guys i'm tired i'm tired let's yeah. be nice to each other let's all be friends and have sunshine and rainbows but it is it's, it's that thing of if you can't handle the heat get out of the kitchen it's like why well you've like and you're permanent you're like 
adding gasoline to yeah, you're people the one from setting me on fire <laughs> they're taking people from lower class backgrounds and covering them in petrol <laughs> yeah exactly like like get out the kitchen guys if you can't handle it it's fine they've set the match meanwhile they're in like the lock-in i've ended up fine. on i've ended up on a it's fine kitchen metaphor kitchen here. metaphors that's nice it's all right exactly yeah this feels like a lo- nice place to end the yeah. conversation katie <laughs> yeah thank you very very much no, of course for answering my kitschy questions and for talking about education before we say goodbye is there anything you would like to plug or promote Uh, yeah Uh, so uh you can you can find me on um instagram at kt miles letters kt miles um on twitter kt miles underscore i'm not doing anything fun at the moment but um i i might be soon so social media is the place to be yay katie thank you very very much for being with us thank you very much thank you for having me gorge any any final kitsch words of wisdom have fun just have fun life's too short i love it i love it thank you very very much for listening to this episode of the exam hall my name is Cherry Eckle and I have been your host. If you're interested in what I'm up to, you can find me at Cherry the Eckle on Instagram and Twitter and Cherry Eckle on YouTube. If you want to keep up to date with the exam hall, you can follow us on social media at the exam hall pod on Instagram and Twitter. If you enjoyed this episode, please uh, follow the show, share it, rate it. And if you didn't like it, you've been listening to This American Life. I thought that was funny. I thought that was a good one. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you listen to this episode and you're like, I want to do that. I want to get involved. I want to be a guest. Come get involved. Come be a guest. If you do want to be featured on a future episode of The Exam Hall, you can get in contact on social media at The Exam Hall Pod, or you can click the link in the episode description, uh, which will take you to an expression of interest form. Before we go, I would like to say some thank yous. Thank you to Boundless Theatre, whose support made this podcast possible. Thank you to Stratman Space Project, who provided the space that we recorded this episode at. And thank you to you, the listener, for listening. Thank you very much. Have fun, guys. See you later. <laughs>